Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. So I, I have nothing but uh, fear over what would have happened had I continued on that pathway. You know what? I would have been successful. I probably would have ended up, as David Axelrod said, probably the editor of the Tribune. And, and I would have got to that position and, and realized that, you know, is this it? Hey everybody, welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark. I am the online managing editor for Christianity Today and the host of The Calling. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Lee Strobel, who's the professor at Houston Baptist University and a teaching pastor at Woodlands Church. But you probably know him best from one of the 20 plus books he's written over the years, including the incredibly popular the case for Christ. Just on a personal level, I was pretty excited to talk to Lee because I uh, grew up as a Christian uh, reading his book. It was something I read around the age of 16 that, um, or maybe before, actually, yeah, I think I read it before I was 16, which was before I was a Christian, um, when I was just interested in spiritual things and maybe considered myself a Christian, but wasn't totally convinced that I was right. And a lot of that book really did a lot, I think, it's hard to know, but I think it did a lot to bolster my faith at the time, and certainly it influenced me in several ways. Intellectually, I was interested to talk to him about how apologetics has changed since that time, because that was obviously, I think we all kind of feel that that was a very different time uh, culturally. It was a time when truth claims were more important to people and sort of reasoning things out was more important. Um, so we got into a little of the difference and maybe what's not so different about that time and now. Um, I found that to be a really fascinating conversation. And we also talked a little bit about what his latest book is about, which is called Spiritual Mismatch. It's about just the nature of a, of the marriage relationship when uh, one person is a Christian and one person is not. One of the most interesting things, obviously, about Lee Strobel right now is that his he has a movie coming out about his life um, and about this experience of being an atheist whose wife comes to faith. Uh, that movie actually comes out on April 7th. You may or may not uh, be listening to this before or after that time. But I'm really intrigued by it because it seems like it's sort of a... The way even Lee Strobel describes it is like... 14 movies in one. It's kind of a journalist movie. Uh, the trailer reminded me a little bit of Spotlight, actually. Um, there's a love story in there. There's a faith story in there. And most interestingly to me is just the actors who are playing these things are like genuinely legit. We talk about that a little bit. Um, it was fun to talk to him about just the journey of having a movie uh, made about your life and what that was like. In the book that this movie was about, The Case for Christ, he does a series of interviews with Bible scholars and theologians, sort of asking them hard, reasoned questions about the resurrection of Christ. And that was sort of what it was focused on. And one of the people he talks to is Michael Lacana. We actually have a really interesting interview with Michael Lacana in the, in the upcoming issue of Christianity Today. 
you might want to subscribe now if you want to read it. It's basically about how Lacona takes a very similar similar approach to Christianity as Strobel did back when he was an atheist, which is to step back, figure out, does it make reasonable sense? It's definitely an approach you see less of these days, so I found the interview really fascinating. Yeah, so you can get that in the latest issue of Christianity Today. Um, if you subscribe now, we've got a special deal for those who are podcast listeners at orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct.com slash the calling. You'll get 10 award-winning print issues, tablet and PDF editions, um, full web access to christianitoday.com. You'll get our archives dating back to the 50s. Um, and we're if you subscribe now using orderct.com slash the calling, you'll get a discounted subscription plus a bonus de- download that was especially created for our podcast listeners. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Just head over to orderct.com slash the calling to subscribe. Here's my interview with Lee Strobel. So you uh, you have a movie coming out. Yeah. This is the weird. This is has to be like a weird moment for you because you have a movie coming out. There's a. It's about your life. Right. right. It's about your marriage. Yeah. And there's like a guy playing you. I wrote this down because it was fascinating. The people, like the, the main cast in this movie is yeah. so interesting to me. The guy that plays you was in uh, Cloverfield, The Help, Blue Valentine, which is like a little indie movie that I saw that is super weird. <laughs> and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He so, was? I didn't yes. know he was in that. I'm, I'm assuming, <laughs> I think it's the remake. Okay. Um, I'm assuming you've seen all of his films. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but th- that is like, um, and then the... Even more interesting, I think your wife kind of won because she got the the woman from yeah. Parenthood, right. which is like one of my favorite yeah. TV shows of yeah. all time. Everybody, you know, here's what's funny. We we, we have Faye Dunaway in it. Yes, and, and, and that, yes. Which is huge. But most people, if they're over 40, yeah. and I say Faye Dunaway, they go, oh my goodness, how did you get Faye Dunaway? She's a Hollywood legend. Right. Under 40, it's like, Who? Yeah, I mean, I've had so many people say, I have no idea who that is. But then you just then say... they know Erica Christensen. Yes. A- and they go, oh, Parenthood, yeah. Right. But also, if you just say Chinatown... Right. Like, come on. Yeah. People know what Chinatown a- is. And Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Wasn't she in Network? Was yes. it Network? Yeah. yeah. She was good in that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love Network. Yeah. That was a great movie. Well, that's... So, how... How does that make you feel to have like um, these celebrities playing like your you and your wife? Well, it's very odd. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's um, because we wanted the film to be honest. Yeah. And so it deals with some of the ugly parts of our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, our behavior that we're not particularly proud of mm-hmm. before we were Christians. And it shows that. And it shows my drinking. It shows uh, my misbehavior yeah. um, and um, shortcomings. And so from that perspective, it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leslie has watched the movie 10 times so far. Huh. And when I asked her, why do you keep watching it? She said, I'm trying to get cried out. Wow. Uh, so that when I see it in public, I don't weep and embarrass myself. Yeah. Um, so it's emotional for us. Whoa, I mean, this was a turbulent it, yeah. era of our marriage. I mean, this is our life. This is our story. This yeah. is These are private conversations that uh-huh. we had that all of a sudden are on the big screen. Yeah. Because we've told them to the screenwriter and because we wanted to be honest about what happened. And, um, you know, so when you see them played out in front of you, it's, uh, it's a very um, disconcerting 
feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can see that because I, now it's just occurring. So yeah. you have this book out right. uh, that you and your wife have written called Spiritual Mismatch. And it's and it explores this sort of uh, sort of heart. What's the word I'm thinking of? Well, Heart-rending time of where two spouses are not on the same page. Exactly. Right. Which is, you know, very common. You know, if churches are doing their job, they're creating unequally yoked marriages. Because, you know, usually one person will come to faith, but not the other person at the same time. Yeah. And so if churches are doing their job, they're leading people to faith and creating these unequally yoked marriages. Yeah. And they're difficult because now your worldviews are clashing uh, leads to all kinds of conflict. I mean, I think this is why the Bible warns against it. And so um, we're, we talk in that book about our experiences living in that situation for two years. And, of course, some people it's 20 years. And, yeah. Um, but we talk honestly about the conflict that resulted and, and how to deal with it and some things we learned, some lessons we learned. But this movie... Uh, draws a lot from that book. It's right. not just the case for Christ. If people think, "Oh, the case for Christ is the documentary," because yeah. that book's a lot of interviews with scholars, and everything. no, it's not. It's a it's a feature film with actors and actresses, and it's a love story. It's a marriage story. It's a faith story. It's a perseverance story. It's a big city newspaper story. It's a story about a father and a son relationship, mm-hmm. and it's a story about a spiritual journey with the evidence for the resurrection. So there's that resonates with me. That's that family story in particular resonates with me because my mom. For me and my mom, especially as I became a Christian when I was 16, yeah. to have to deal with those sort of like um, awkward, yes. the awkward back and forth. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. There's a million ways it affects your relationship. And often, not always, but often it results in the Christian kind of watering down their faith. Mm. Um, and I think that's why the Bible warns against it. Um but yeah, if you look at the, you know the, the how your worldviews clash in terms of how to raise the children and how to spend your money and how to spend your weekends, and honestly, I felt a lot of hostility because I felt like there was another man in our relationship. Right. That yes. All of a sudden, Jesus is part of this. Well, who's he, and why is she getting emotional support from him? Yeah. I thought <laughs> yeah. that was my job. Yeah. And. Um, and, and she was being pulled into this Christian subculture where I didn't feel I was welcome as, a, as an atheist. So, yeah, it's a difficult uh, era. It was of our marriage, and I think for a lot of people. What was visiting church like with her, or did you visit church I with did. her? I did. Well, I remember atheist? when she—and the shows in the movie, it's, it was a funny—I uh, mean, I don't know funny, but it was a, a very real moment yeah. that happened where I was sleeping off a hangover from Saturday night <laughs> on the couch, and uh, she comes in, she's getting ready to go to church, yeah. and she said, why don't you come do me a favor why don't you come with me today mm-hmm. and um i said yes and the reason i said yes is because i felt like i was losing her and i wanted to rescue her i wanted to get her back from this cult but i remember saying to her we have this in the film i said you know i'm going to bring my reporter's notebook because mm-hmm. i'm going to look for a scandal yeah and i yeah. bet you i can find a scandal at this church and and i'll expose it yeah. you know i'll get a front page story in the tribune so um that was part of my motive but um you know it's difficult and and uh frightening for an atheist to walk into a church you don't know what to expect when right. to sit when to stand you're afraid you're going to be embarrassed we actually cut a line out of from the movie originally where i try to tip the guy that gives me the bulletin when i come <laughs> in uh-huh. i don't know you know yeah. so um um you know it's an uncomfortable deal and that's why willow creek church was so important to us in those early years okay yeah the woman who reached out to leslie went to a bible church it was an excellent church but she knew if she brought leslie to that church leslie would freak out it would be a totally alien culture so she brought him brought her to willow creek which was a church for the unchurched mm. 
And, and then that's where Leslie brought me. And then ironically, years later, after I came to faith, I ended up a teaching pastor. So at that there. church, there's like an understanding that if that uh, you're not necessarily going to know everything that's going on or why. Yeah, the, it, it's done in a way that is um, that kind of puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. That, that it was, at least in those days, the weekends were designed for the non-believer. Uh, the believers worshiped on Wednesday night. Yeah. So the non-believers, it was for them. So everything was thought through from the perspective of the non-believer. So it made the entry into the church much easier than you know a, a church that um, where the rituals and the the language and and uh, the customs are alien to someone. Right. So some would say that doing that means once you become a believer, you're sort of the church's agenda is sort of um, set by non-believers because well, you're always looking to non-believers. Yeah, for the weekends, but then the believers would gather on Wednesday night. Okay, and that was it. our worship time. And that, Be- yeah, okay, yeah. Because Acts two says they worshipped every day. Yeah. You know, they got together every day. So we figured, well, okay, then we'll, we'll give because a non-believer, if they're going to go to church, is going to go on Sunday. Because that's when you go to church, right? Sure. <laughs> so we thought, you know, we'll, 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 or they thought, we'll make that available to the non-believer, and then we'll sacrifice, because we would like to worship on Sunday, yeah. but we'll sacrifice worship on Wednesday so that um, we can reach our non-believing friends on the weekend. Mm-hmm. So that was the philosophy of Willow Creek when it started. I think things have changed a bit through the years. Sure. But, uh, and that's what made it so radical. The way that things have changed through the years is interesting. We'll probably get that get yeah. to that later in the conversation, but... Yeah. Um, I wanted to start by asking you what we all ask everyone at the beginning of the podcast, which is how would you define your calling? Uh, my calling is as an evangelist. Okay. Uh, people think I'm an apologist uh-huh. because I talk a lot about the evidence for the faith, but um, I use apologetics or evidence uh, as a way to do evangelism. And so like at Houston Baptist University, where I'm a professor of Christian thought, I don't teach apologetics. I teach evangelism. Yeah. So um, that's my calling. That's my passion is to see people come to Christ. And uh, my my particular approach, because I tend to be a person who needs evidence, who needs facts and mm-hmm. logic, and because of my background in journalism and law, I tend to think that way. Uh, so I tend to reach out in that way generally. Mm-hmm. But uh, my real passion is to see people come to faith. When did you become aware of that? Right after I became a Christian. Yeah. I mean, it was very clear very quickly. I wanted to stay in journalism after I came to faith. I was at the Chicago Tribune. I was legal editor. Um, came to faith in Christ and thought, you know, we need committed Christians in the newsrooms of secular newspapers. Yeah. I mean, I still believe that. But then God clearly called me into the church world mm-hmm. at a 60% pay cut. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, and I remember... People Back then, I guess journalism paid pretty well. It, it didn't. That was a thing. Oh, <laughs> no. man. It was 60% of very little. That I, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and people try to talk me out of it. In fact, a lot of believers try to talk me out of it. They say, huh. oh, you're never going to be able to send your kids to college. You're uh-huh. never going to be able to live on that amount of money. And I remember when um, they offered me the position at Willow Creek Church, mm. uh, and part of it was to be associate director of evangelism, which okay. was my passion. And when they told me what they were going to pay me, which was 40% of my earnings at the mm. time, I said, absolutely, great. <laughs> and they said to me later, we were kind of surprised that you took the, you know, without hesitating. I said, I would have done it for nothing. I would have done it for nothing and lived off of fumes. I mean, because I was so passionate about reaching people. And Willow Creek at that time was an evangelistic engine. I mean, we it was the heyday of their evangelistic era. And so I was happy to take the 60% right. rate. Cut. So you went straight from being, from becoming a Christian. Yeah 
into full-time ministry? It, there was a two-year process where I was um, editor of a newspaper in Missouri. Okay. Uh, I wanted to run a newspaper, and so I had an opportunity to run what was recognized generally as the best small newspaper in America. Cool. And so I became editor, uh, managing editor of that newspaper for mm-hmm. a couple of years. Then I came back to Chicago and uh, was um, assistant managing editor of the Daily Herald, which okay. is the third largest paper in the state. Uh, did that for a few years and then uh, left that actually to come into the church world. So you had like two, it sounds like two and a half years of doing reporting. Yeah, I, actually as an editor, more than that really, when I add the Daily Herald and Missouri together, probably about five years. How did your how did your faith uh, change your approach to that? Very much. Um, I remember we were doing an investigation of some corruption in a jail, a prison. That mm-hmm. wasn't a prison, it was a jail um, when I was editor in Missouri. And uh, I told the reporters, look, I'm a Christian. And we're going to be above board in this investigation. We're going to make some serious allegations. We're not going to make them half-cocked. We're not going to make them uh, accept when they are based on solid evidence and solid proof. If we're going to mess with people's reputations, I want sworn affidavits from witnesses and so forth. So it it made me more conscientious. It made me more careful, I think, as a reporter and and as an editor. So I tried to live out my values, and I was new at it. You know, this is my first job running a newspaper, and and so, um, golly, I was learning on the the fly. Right. And, um, but trying to apply my Christian values into that uh, arena, it was challenging. It was fun, and, and you know, I still believe that we need committed uh, Christians in that world for sure. I assume a lot of people un- in the staff that you're in charge of at that time weren't yeah. Christians. Most of them were not. I so had a couple who were. How yeah. did how did they respond to to sort of your your outrightness about being a Christian? They were time? fine. Okay, they, I never had any pushback, at least to my face. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what they said behind my back. Yeah. But. Um, Nobody seemed to, to mind. I okay. mean, you know, everybody comes from a worldview and a perspective, and that was mine. And um, I think that they were appreciative of the fact that I was um, trying to be a conscientious editor mm-hmm. and um, uh, protect us legally, uh, but also protect us morally. And, you know, because there are things you can do that are legal that aren't necessarily right and sure. appropriate. And, and, and we did some things. You know, I remember uh, I was the newspaper was in Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri is, and, and I initiated an investigation into improper activity by boosters of the athletic department who were doing some things that the NCAA would not be happy with. And we did some exposés of that, which made us very unpopular <laughs> in that town. Right. But it was the right thing to do. It yeah. was the right thing to do. We, we saw corruption or things that we think thought weren't right, and we exposed them. Just to remind people, uh, or to let people know who may not know, why don't you tell me like what the movie is about, what the sure. book is about, yeah. and uh, just really quickly, and sure. I'll maybe explore that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I was an atheist. Uh, my wife, Leslie, was agnostic. Mm-hmm. We got married, um, fell in love when we were 14 years old, mm-hmm. and got married young. I was 20. She was 19. Because we had similar worldviews, we had you know no real conflicts in our marriage from that aspect. Um, but then she becomes a Christian mm-hmm. uh, through the influence of a neighbor who was a Christian and a nurse. That was the worst possible news I could get right. you know, as an atheist. I remember, in fact, the scene in the movie is so reminiscent of what happened when she tells me she's prayed and she's you know asked Jesus to be her forgiver and leader. And, and uh, I'm thinking, first word that went through my mind was a divorce. Huh. I was going to walk out wow. um, because I thought she was going to turn into some holy roller or something or yeah. want to spend all her time on Skid Row serving the poor or whatever. Right. It wasn't what I signed up for. Yeah. And um, um, so two things happened subsequent to that. I didn't walk out. 
And I began to see positive changes in her character and values. Mm -hmm. And and those were winsome and attractive, and they kind of pulled me toward the faith. But at the same time, my hostility was increasing because Mm -hmm. of the things I mentioned earlier, the clashes and worldview about how to spend our time and how to spend our money and our weekends and and, um, this Jesus who all of a sudden is another man in our marriage and and being pulled into this subculture where I wasn't welcome. All that created a lot of hostility in me. Mm -hmm. I remember once... and. They, they didn't put the scene in the movie. They, they, they uh, put it this way. They watered it down a bit. I think they thought it was a little too much, but uh-huh. it's true. I mean, I just, she was going to church and I was so mad. I, I reared back and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. Wow. And um, in the movie, I, I turn over a flower pot thing. <laughs> right. Um, like, think, he's got to be likable. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I thought, I think they thought the, the wall thing was too much, but that's what happened. And so I had a lot of rage uh-huh. over this. And, uh, I mean, I was a heavy drinker at the time okay. and uh, narcissist, hedonist, uh, self-absorbed, uh, atheist reporter. And um, so I decided because of this negative um, reaction to use my journalism and legal training and investigate Christianity. With the hope in the back of my mind, I could get her out of this cult that she's involved in. Um, if I could disprove the resurrection, because clearly the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. Yeah. If that's, it could be the Achilles heel. You mm-hmm. know, if you can disprove that, then you can, the whole thing tumbles. Yeah. So I thought, well, I can do that in a weekend. That can't be that hard, right? right. Well, it took me two years uh, to investigate it and, and come ultimately to the opposite conclusion that the evidence of history supports it in a, in a powerful and persuasive way. I want to stop you there because yeah. there is a crazy assumption. <laughs> There's one you're assuming one of two things in that attempt. Yeah. Is that um, either no one else has tried this yeah. or that you're the very best at it and could actually pull it off in I, a weekend. I thought I was the very best at it. I okay. mean, I had a lot of pride. And, um, you know, I was trained at Yale Law School. I knew what evidence was. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd investigated major cases. I've won awards for investigative reporting. I knew what evidence. So you're like, if anyone can do if this. A- if anybody can do it, I can do it. Yeah. You know, it can't be that hard, yeah. you know. Um, uh, and I you know, frankly, they didn't know about other people that had done this before. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I was familiar with people like C.S. Lewis or okay, Sir Lionel yeah. Lucku or, or um, uh, Frank Morris, I think is the name, who wrote Who Moved the Stone mm-hmm. and so forth. Other people who've done this in the past. Uh, Josh McDowell. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just thought, well, gosh, this can't be difficult. Right. I mean, I, the supernatural is ridiculous. There's no supernatural. There's no God. Yeah. So certainly the resurrection could be explained away. Uh, in some rational way. Sure. Um, well, not so easily as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've yeah. seen the trailer. Yeah. And there's some dialogue that happens in the trailer between you and your boss. Was yeah. that was that something that actually took place? Did you did you um, was this like a part of your job? In that moment, no. did you like pitch this as an article? That's what really threw me off. Yeah. Is like, was this a really an article idea pitch? It, it wasn't initially. Yeah. Now after I after I came to faith, okay. and it was a while after I came to faith, um, Leslie suggested I write a book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, um, and and I think in looking back, of course, this goes so many years ago. I think I made a half-hearted attempt to to pitch it to the Tribune as a feature article. Okay. Uh, after I did it. But that wasn't my intent when I was set out to do it. Sure. I mean, I was just doing it for my own marriage, for uh-huh. the sake of rescuing my wife from this cult that she got involved in. Yeah. So um, it wasn't like I kept great notes. I mean, I kept notes for myself. But ultimately, when I did the book, um, which was published in, many years later in 1998, mm-hmm. 
I went out and, and retraced and expanded on my original journey so I could tape record all the interviews and mm -hmm. get everything down accurately and so forth. Yeah. Th there was um, a reporter at the Tribune whose desk was next to mine. Actually, on one side, the other desk next to mine was David Axelrod, who later became oh, wow. special advisor to the president of the United States. Yeah. And the other side was a religion editor. I was uh -huh. a legal editor. And um, David uh, Axelrod was the deputy political editor at the time. Uh -huh. And uh, the religion editor was a Christian and a really nice guy. And I remember he invited <laughs> Leslie and I over to his house for dinner. And, it, and before dinner, he said, can I pray? <laughs> and I kind of looked at Leslie like, oh, here it goes. <laughs> but he was such a nice guy. Yeah. You know, he never hit us over the head with it. You I didn't talk to him about the this idea you this had? Is before, that you were gonna... This is before the idea. Okay. Uh, yeah, this was beforehand. But yeah. in the movie, the problem with creating a movie is um, you're – taking what was a two-year experience right. and putting it into a, a three-act play, so to speak, yeah. over 90 minutes. Yeah. So you have to do some time shifting. You right. have to do some composite characters. So the movie's about 80 to 85% accurate, and many of the scenes are verbatim yeah. from, from our marriage. <laughs> Those are the scariest ones. <laughs> right, right, right. So your, call, so your calling is one of evangelism. Right. Did, was there ever a point where you doubted that call? No, never. I mean, it, you've you know, been certain ever since. Absolutely. absolutely There's no doubt yeah. in my mind. I mean, to the degree that, um, you know, uh, I'm not particularly good at discipling people. I huh. mean, w when I bring them to faith, I hand them off to someone else to disciple them because uh -huh. I want to lead more people of faith. Yeah. And I think that's a sign of a, you know, either a spiritually gifted. Some people disagree whether there's a spiritual gift of evangelism. I know Ed Stetzer, for instance, doesn't, okay. think, doesn't think so. <laughs> uh -huh. And I respect Ed. Sure. But either way, I think God gives a divine enablement to certain mm -hmm. people, you know, uh, and have a passion for evangelism. And um, one of the ways to douse that is to make a, an evangelist disciple someone. <laughs> right, right. I want to go out and lead more people to faith. I turn them over to somebody else to disciple them. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What would you say is uh, the biggest struggle you've had in working out your calling? Uh, I think, um, you know, when you get pulled into the Christian subculture and the evangelical world, uh, you can sometimes get cut off from um, the non-believers in your life. And you really have to make a concerted effort to continue relationships and continue friendships and to reach out. One of the things that Leslie and I do, for instance, um, we like to go out to eat. Not to fancy restaurants, just uh, hole-in-the-wall places. And and so instead of going to different places, we try to focus on one 
or two places where we can get to know the waiters and waitresses and the management and so forth for the purpose of reaching out to them spiritually. And uh, we just had a, a waiter at a restaurant come to faith in Christ um, and, and just electric with his new faith. It was so exciting. Hmm. But we go back to that restaurant. I don't like Mexican food, but we go to a Mexican <laughs> restaurant at least three days a week. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, I don't like the food, but I love the people. Yeah. And it's a family-owned restaurant. We love the people. And I think that's one way I can stay in the real world and, and reach people with the gospel. Yeah. Do they know you don't like their food? <laughs> no. You know, there's like three dishes that I'll eat, you know, <laughs> okay. like broiled fish, okay. you know. And uh, I used to eat fajitas, <laughs> but I've been trying to lose weight, so I, I'm not eating the flour and the tortillas. That's fair. And then um, what's the other thing? I have? Oh, the shrimp wrapped in bacon. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's those are my three. So the three things, I just order those all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. I always just order the same thing anyway. Well, that's, yeah. But I don't know. If you ask me, what's the difference between a burrito and a um, enchilada? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I don't know what a burrito is. I don't know what enchilada. I I, it's like I know it when I see it. I don't know if I can tell you <laughs> the difference. I feel like burrito is bigger. Yeah, but that's it sounds kind of, bigger. That's, burrito. That's right. Sounds big. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that's happened over the years is is culture has changed yeah. quite a bit, obviously. Yeah. And one thing that interests me about you is that you came to sort of like popularity at a time when sort of reasoned arguments for faith, for the gospel, were like a big deal. Mm. And I remember being a high schooler thinking like, it'd be great if someone could prove this to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It feels to me and to others, I guess, like uh, over time, that has bec- been a less compelling approach. Mm. And it, it does seem to me like your personality is different, right? Yeah. Like you... You want to know. You want to know what the reason is. Yeah. You want to know. You want to know that it's uh, true, that factually true. Right. That it's real facts. Yeah. Um, do you do you kind of feel that shift happening? Is that something you've felt the need to respond to in any way? Or? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Um, on the no part. On the yes part, I'll say that uh, certainly we see a trend toward a postmodern mindset, mm-hmm. and we see a trend toward uh, you know as what was the word of the year post truth. Uh, mm-hmm, post-truth mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I am unconvinced that apologetics, I'm going to, that's too many negatives in one sentence. I'll, I'll put it this way. <laughs> I think that evangelism in the 21st century uh-huh. is spelled apologetics. Okay. I think it is still relevant. And and here's some, here's an anecdote that uh, amazed me and is counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. When I was interviewing a scholar from my book, um, while I was changing my tape in the tape recorder, this is 1998, mm-hmm. He said, you know, nobody's going to read your book. <laughs> I said, why not? He said, we live in a postmodern culture. He said, young people especially are not interested in evidence yeah. for the faith. It's yeah. just not, they're not interested. So I went home and told Leslie, nobody's going to read my book. I'm wasting my time. Uh, so we published the book, and the single biggest group of people who have reported to me through letters, emails, Twitter, et cetera, that they have come to faith through the book have been mm-hmm. 16 through 24-year-olds. Wow. Young people. Yeah. Now, Christian Today ran an article not long ago, and the headline said, Apologetics Makes a Comeback in Student Ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think young people are interested, and I think it's partially a reaction against the postmodern mindset. They are looking for something solid. They are looking for something to believe in. And here's what's happening. This is the, this is the trend that I'm seeing. 
the new atheists, um, you know, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and these guys are writing these books attacking faith. Christians are not reading these books, but their neighbors are and their colleagues at work are and their fellow students at the university are. And then they're coming to us as Christians saying, hey, what about this? You know, Sam Harris says this or Daniel Dennis says this. And Christians who have not been prepared by the church to respond go, uh, I don't know. It starts to ding their faith a bit, and, and they feel embarrassed. They don't know what to do. So now they're going to their pastor and saying, hey, you got to equip me. You've got to help me. I'm getting hit with these questions. You need to equip me to be better prepared, as First Peter 3.15 says, that yeah. we can answer these things. And, and so I think this is ushering in a golden age of Christian apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing better scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing, and it's a different, yes, it is a different, and this is why I want to say yes to what you're saying. Sure. It is a different approach. You know, back in the 1960s and 70s, uh, apologetics was lining up a guy and machine gunning them with facts with fa- yeah. that they knew to be true because right. they learned it in, in Sunday school anyway, yeah. and they just need to be reminded. Well, that's not true anymore. Now it's more what I call relational apologetics mm-hmm. or conversational apologetics. Mm-hmm. It's friendships. It's conversations. It's dialogues where we engage with these questions and these topics and um, um, on a personal level. So it's, it doesn't just become, golly, why does a loving God allow pain and suffering? It becomes, where was God when we lost a child in childbirth five years ago? Yeah. It becomes a personal issue. And you're also, another phenomenon you're seeing is apologetics ministries, which spun away from the church when the church wasn't interested. And so you have the proliferation of parachurch organizations, which mm-hmm. are fine and good. But now we're seeing churches kind of bring those under the umbrella of the local church. And Mm. so you see many churches that have apologetics ministries. Um, So I I see all this as very positive. And, um, um, you know, yes, the kind of questions change. They're more personal. They may be broader. They may deal with um, topics that we didn't deal with back in the 90s. But I I think they're ever more important. One of the things that I've seen is that a big... Um, category of objections people have with mm-hmm. Christianity these days in yeah. particular are moral objections, Yes, which is fascinating. You think back to when your wife was saved and you yeah. said you saw her become a better person. Right. A lot of people don't think that way when mm-hmm. they see people come to Christianity. They right. see them in their mind becoming worse people, yeah. quote unquote bigots. Yeah. They see them become like... Um, they see them become sort of brainwashed. They mm-hmm. can't think for themselves. They think weird things about gender roles and homosexuality that they don't relate to. Yeah. They say things on a personal level, like, my brother is gay. You think he's going to hell. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Yeah. How do you, how, or have you thought about like how to address these moral objections to Christianity at all? Yeah, I mean, um, there have been some great resources produced on that. Sean McDowell, um, Josh's son, has done okay. a great book, for instance, on these uh, issues involving gender and sexuality. Hmm. Uh, so there's good apologetics being done on those uh, topics um, specifically. But to me, it all goes back to the resurrection. Mm. If Jesus came back from the yeah. dead, yeah. then these are not just suggestions. And we can say, oh, I disagree with that. I don't like that. That's not to my taste. But these are from God himself. Huh. And so, you know, ultimately, I think the firm foundation, you know, the, the Bible says our hope, and it, it specifically links hope with the resurrection. And, it, it, you know, that's the basis of our faith and of our hope. 
And so ultimately, I think it goes back to, is this based on mythology and make-believe and wishful thinking and, and legend, or is it based on a solid foundation of historical truth? And if it is, then we have to take it seriously, and we have to bring our beliefs in line with the teachings of, of Scripture. Um, how would you say uh, ministry has changed you over time? I think ministry is a lot like uh, journalism. Uh, in the sense that when you're, uh, like I was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune, mm-hmm. and I was a really good reporter. I mean, I, 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 for whatever reason, I was really good at it. Yeah. Well, what happens then? You get promoted, and you become an editor. Yeah, yeah. You may not be suited to be an editor, but that's kind of the pathway, you know? <laughs> right. Um, it's a different skill set. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's huge pressure to climb that, financial pressure and prestige pressure to climb that ladder uh, in fact, I was talking to David Axelrod, uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the other d- day on Twitter. We were going back and Are forth. You, do you still talk to him? We we reconnected recently. Okay. And um, in fact, I'm gonna. He asked me if we get together when I'm in Chicago next. So I'm hoping we can get together. Um, but he said, uh, Lee, I always expected you'd end up editor of the Chicago Tribune. Hmm. And I said, um, Yeah, I kind of did too. But God had different plans for me. And uh, but you know. Uh, in the end, I would have been a terrible editor of the Chicago Tribune. Hmm. I was a good reporter, but that's a different skill set. And in ministry, it's similar. You come on the staff of a church, and uh, you, you, as a student pastor, or you know, like I did, I was head of service ministries and associate director of evangelism at a mega church. And then the the pressure is you rise up and, and you eventually become a senior pastor somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you may not be gifted to yeah. be a senior pastor. I remember the moment when I realized that I was not a spiritually gifted leader. Yeah. And it was one of the most liberating moments of my life huh. because I had churches approaching me to be senior pastor. Oh, would you come to our church and, and be the... Why? Well, because I was able to teach the Word of God and weekends mm-hmm. and, and be an evangelist and so. So they figured, hey, he can be senior pastor. Mm-hmm. You know what? I realized one day that's not who God made me to be. Hmm. I'm an evangelist, Mm -hmm. and I I don't need to um, aspire to a role of leadership that I'm not gifted for and, frankly, not passionate about. But that's okay. Uh So that's been how my ministry has changed, that um, I think when I first got into it, the natural progression would be you become a senior pastor someday. Um, And, you know, I've realized that's not me. I'm an evangelist. I do that by writing books, by speaking. And so my role, I'm on the, on the staff of uh, Woodlands Church in um, Woodlands, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, as a teaching pastor, okay. which means I teach 10 weekends a year, and that fits me perfectly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so um, I'm very big on spiritual gifts and what is our giftedness and our passion and our calling. Yeah. What would you say as, uh, in your work as an evangelist is the, the deepest fear you have? That I would lose um, the conviction that the gospel still works. Hmm. I remember several years ago, I was in a church service in California, and it was a very upscale community, mm-hmm. millionaires and in this area. I mean, it was very wealthy. And the pastor gets up, and I knew the pastor. He's a really good guy, but he's not an evangelist. That's just not his gifting, which is fine. But a great Bible teacher, good leader, excellent church. He gets up, and I'm sitting there toward the back with Leslie, and he's, he, he does an evangelistic message. And at the end, he says, now, if you want to receive Christ, if you... I want you to stand to your feet right now and call out to me, I believe. Hmm. 
And I'm thinking, oh, no, <laughs> what are you doing? You think these people in this upscale community are going to stand up in front of their neighbors and say, and I'm thinking, I got to I gotta give this guy some advice yeah. later. I got to pull him aside and say, no, 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 this dude, is not. Dude, be cool. cool. Yeah, dude, this is not. And all of a sudden, people start standing. Yeah. I believe. I believe. Huh. I believe. Guy right in front of me stood up. I believe. Uh-huh. And there were dozens of them that day. And then I thought, shame on me. You know, the gospel still works. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you lose sight of that because sometimes you feel like you're banging your head against the wall. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't see the results. And, and you feel like, you know, is God still changing lives? Well, yeah, he is in the, still in the life-changing business and yeah. still in the soul-saving uh, business. Um, we can't lose sight of that. And sometimes you need to be reminded that way. Yeah. That, uh, you know, the Spirit, he's going to work what he wants to do regardless of the evangelistic technique yeah. that you think somebody ought to employ. Yeah, that's interesting because correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong yeah. here. But it seems like one of the dangers of apologetics as uh, sort of an interest yeah. is that you— you 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 start to see that as the way yeah. to get people to that accepting of Christ. Yeah. Um, when when maybe you should be relying a little more on just the nature of the gospel itself. Yeah, I mean, you can get caught up in the arguments, and more important, mm-hmm. you you may start feeling subtly that it's more important to win the argument than to win the person. Yeah. You know, um, that's why I say I'm an evangelist, not an apologist. Yeah. That I try to use apologetics where it's appropriate. You know, how often when I'm involved with personal evangelism is apologetics, does it come into play? Eh, maybe 30% of the time. Okay. Most of the time, not. Yeah. Um, it's more about other issues. Um, but it does come up quite mm-hmm. a bit. And I'm glad that, you know, I, I, I feel fairly ready to wrestle with those issues. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's common, too common for apologists, particularly, to, to become very academic and ivory tower. And to um, argue, spend their time arguing over nuances of, God, of doctrine that really don't amount to too much, uh, and losing sight of, you know, uh, as, as Luther said, uh, apologetics is the handmaiden of evangelism. Mm. It, it's, it, it's not an end of itself, it's a means by which God often draws people into the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we got to keep that perspective. The last question we ask everyone as well so it is basically imagine you have a time machine yeah you step into that time machine yeah you go back in time step out of that time machine and introduce yourself to yourself what do you tell them introduce myself to myself yes that's that's blowing my mind (laughs) (laughs) my mind is blown (laughs) that's the that's the goal so uh yeah your younger self what do you tell them what do i tell my younger self Mm -hmm. Yeah, before I'm a Christian, I would have said, get your act together and find Jesus, <laughs> right. you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, would that have worked? <laughs> would that have worked? If I'm coming from me, it might have yeah, been. I think you that's know, true. if I'm coming back from the future and yeah. say, you moron, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I, I would have said to myself, um, um, you know, let's just play a let's just play a mental experiment here. Play out your life hmm. on the trajectory that it's currently at. Huh. And then play out your life as it would be as a follower of Jesus and see where you end up each and, and how you feel about yourself at the end. What do you feel like the trajectory was originally? It was, it was destruction. It was, I mean, I was a highly successful journalist who was drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. Uh, I was a narcissist. I was a, a, I was a hedonist. And uh, ultimately, my marriage would have blown apart. 
I would have. Uh, I I don't even want to ponder where I would have ended up. I would have gone off a cliff. The, the, there are a lot of people in that position though that end up like David Axelrod. He's not drunk, but yeah. he 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 was a highly successful person. Yeah, not a Christian. Right, but he's by all worldly terms, he's fine. So what what was it about you then that makes you think you would have ended up in? Total destruction. Because I was a a narcissist and because it was all about me, because ultimately I cared only about my pleasure and and so forth, um, I think that would have led uh, eventually to my demise. Um, I don't know how Leslie could have stayed married to me um, through that kind of personality forever. Uh, It would have come to a crisis point at some point. Uh, the drinking would have um, seized me in a way that um, would have been destructive. Kids, uh, when my daughter was a toddler, if she was playing with toys in the living room and she heard me come home from work through the front door, she would just naturally gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Wow. She can be drunk again. She wow. can be yelling and screaming and kicking holes in the wall. Yeah. You know, at least it's nice and quiet in here. So I, I, I fear I would have alienated my children. So I, I have nothing but uh, fear over what would have happened had I continued on that pathway. You know what? I would have been successful. I probably would have ended up, as David Axelrod said, probably the editor of the Tribune. Yeah. And, and I would have got to that position and, and realized that, you know, is this it? Right. You know? Yeah. I remember um, um, after I became a Christian, um, I went to the Tribune and— Um, they would, back in those days when I was a reporter, they would literally clip out your articles that you had a byline on, and they created a file Mm -hmm. with your name on it. Mm -hmm. And they would fold all your articles up into these little yellow envelopes. And so you'd have this big file drawer full of these yellow envelopes with folded articles that you'd written. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Tribune because I was doing research for my books, and I wanted to remind myself about these articles I'd covered, these stories I'd covered. And they laid before me these boxes of all my hundreds and hundreds of articles I'd done over my career at the Chicago Tribune. Hmm. And they're getting yellow and brittle. And I realized I was trading my life (laughs) for that. These articles that are deteriorating yeah. and getting brittle and yellow in a file drawer somewhere. Right. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, thank God he rescued me from this illusion that uh, it was a fair trade, that yeah. I was taking my one and only life and trading it for a file drawer of yellow, brittle, old articles that I didn't even remember. Yeah. I was reading articles. I wrote, I had no recollection of writing this article because um, I did so many. I did as right. many as six a day. Right. So uh, I, I think I would have been successful in the world's eyes, uh, but ultimately would have been empty, and ultimately the, the, the demons of um, drinking and narcissism would have eaten away my soul. I'm curious how, how your kids did react when you did come to Christ. Oh, well... My daughter was five years old Mm -hmm. and had only known a dad who was absent and angry and kicking holes in walls and coming home drunk. That Mm -hmm. was her life experience. But she started to watch after I came to faith Mm -hmm. and from her little five-year-old perspective, you know, and, uh, you know, something's changing with dad, something's different with dad, something's new with dad. And um, she did that for about four or five months. And then one day she came up to Leslie and said, um, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. Hmm. And at age five, she came to faith in Christ. Wow. 
uh, because of the witness of seeing her mom and dad change in front of her eyes. And then um, my son, same thing. Hmm. He came to faith because he saw the difference God was making in his mom and his dad and his sister. And at a young age, he took an academic route, now has a Ph.D. in theology from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland hmm. and is a professor at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Yeah. Um, so both of my children are serving God and, and um, are vibrant in their faith. Uh, and then my little granddaughter, uh, Abigail, who's uh, when she was 10 years old last summer, um, went on her first missions trip hmm. for her church. They mm-hmm. stayed on sleeping bags in the basement of a church in a poverty-stricken area of Texas. And um, during the day, did ministry with children in the neighborhood. And, mm-hmm. and little Abby led a little kindergartner for a uh, girl to faith in Jesus. Wow! So you know, we're seeing the influence of God's grace ripple through the family, right. through the generations. Yeah, and. Um, that to me is is so inspiring and yeah. so uh, heartwarming to see how we sort of were rescued from the precipice um, and, and our family was saved. Uh, God saved us theologically, but he also rescued our family from um, spinning out of control. Uh, and to see the kids and now the grandkids and, you know, they're in Awana, they're memorizing scripture and they love going to church. And it's just exciting to see what God's going to do in that next generation uh, and how that'll ripple through the years. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been very gratifying to see their vibrant walk with Christ. You've been listening to The Calling. Lee Strobel is professor at Houston Baptist University, the teaching pastor at Woodlands Church, and the author of The Case for Christ and his most recent book, Spiritual Mismatch. That's in addition to like 20 other books at least. He's got a movie coming out this Friday, April 7th, called The Case for Christ. You can follow him on Twitter at Lee Strobel. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere used under Creative Commons 4.0.